Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is Every Student Matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. My guest today is Associate Professor Dr Wesley Imms from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. Dr Imms is a skilled educator with teaching awards spanning his primary, secondary and tertiary teaching career. He holds education degrees granted in Australia and Canada, including a research MA and a PhD in curriculum studies from the University of British Columbia. Dr Imms is currently a senior lecturer in the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, is that school's head of visual art education and its research higher degree coordinator for curriculum and teaching. Dr. Imms has an extensive developing research profile with approximately 10 million in solo and collaborative external grant earnings since 2000. Over 40 peer-reviewed publications, many invited national and overseas lectures and major reports completed for state and national governments. He is a member of the University of Melbourne's Graduate Research Scholarships Committee and a member of the Steering Committee of the University's Learning Environments Applied Research Network. Professor Imms, thank you so much for joining me today. That's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You have an extensive career in education and research, having worked on numerous groundbreaking projects. What do you hope to achieve through your educational research, generally speaking? The improved teaching practice. Um, all of the work that I've done has been very teacher focused. Um, you know, I come from a teaching background myself and my PhD and all of my research um, in getting my qualifications to come to the tertiary sector has been around those issues to do with teaching better in the classroom and better results for kids. And I've now been at the University of Melbourne for about 16 years and during that time I've gone through a range of projects and all of them are focused on improving teaching practice and through that improving educational outcomes for children. If we look at your current work, you're a member of the steering committee of the university's Learning Environments Applied Research Network. What is the latest research telling us about 21st century learning environments? Well, um, it's it's not the sort of thing you can answer really quickly and easily. Um, Let's just say that what we are showing through our research is that space does make a difference. And a lot of teachers, um, certainly my own teaching and working with colleagues and thinking back on their comments and their actions, a lot of teachers really just uh, uh, just, just take space for granted. They walk into a classroom, they use it, they walk out again. They might tidy it up, they might move the tables and chairs a bit. Um, but what our research is moving towards is making a really compelling case that actually the manipulation of the type, the design of a classroom um, and how teachers use that classroom, how they manipulate that space is a significant part of their pedagogical arsenal. You can really make a difference to students' learning and the quality of your own teaching by being spatially literate. Can you paint us a picture? Yeah. Okay. Um, An innovative learning environment is one that has got a great deal of flexibility to it. 
If we go backwards a bit, in the 1970s there was the open plan movement where schools basically had their walls demolished and large spaces were put out there so the kids could move around. We call it free ranging these days. Going to whichever teacher they want to go to, the one who they think has got the knowledge they're after, they can go with groups of kids they would like to, um, to work with. The 1970s open plan classroom um, um, fell apart largely because they simply dumped teachers into them. They built them, handed the keys over, put the teachers in with almost no training. So teachers tend to teach the way they always taught. And of course, when you have no walls, etc., it's noisy. Um, so you can't do didactic teaching, that sort of thing. So the 21st century learning environment that um, we're working on, that we work on with schools, with architects, and that we work on with teachers in actually moving into them, they're characterised by um, having the same flexibility that was inherent to the open plan, but actually a much wider range of spaces within. So an example would be um, you'd walk into one of these spaces and there'd be a place there where you could do um, traditional didactic teaching. You can sit the kids down, face the front, watch the whiteboard or watch the data projector and have the teacher teach to them because we have to be able to do that every now and then, that the type of learning and the type of teaching is required requires that sort of space. But you also might look off to one side and you see actually there's a spot over there where a whole bunch of kids are just milling around um, a makerspace and creating things or another spot where they might be working on IT issues around computer labs and, and so there might be a computer lab type space. There'll be breakout spaces where five kids, eight kids can sit around a table and have a talk um, with doors closed so that they, they can focus. The other spaces where, for instance, you might walk into a, uh, through a door into a very small little spot, which has basically got black carpet on the on the walls and a TV screen on the thing, and a curtain across the wall, and each single child can sit in there and work on their work. So, yeah, these modern day learning environments are characterised by having an extraordinary range of opportunities, of spatial opportunities, and to make a lot of that happen. Um, in terms of um, being efficient, we have a lot of modern technology in terms of um, movable walls, um, better acoustics, uh, acoustic treatments, and obviously ubiquitous ICT. So when you combine all of those, oh, and also high quality, um, unique furniture being built for this purpose. So by the time you combine all those things, you do have a new generation of learning spaces. That's not the traditional classroom, or well, some of it is, but it's not all that. It's not the open plan that used to, you know, it was pushed onto us in the 1970s, but it is some of that. It's actually quite a unique, a different thing. Is this a response to the learning approach of 21st century students? Um, a lot of my colleagues talk about this concept of 21st century learning, and I must admit I'm a, a little bit of a sceptic. I um, have presented two or three times, and actually I'm just writing a book at the moment for a colleague in New Zealand, um, writing a chapter for his book along on this topic, and my argument is actually what, what we do in the 21st century isn't that much different than what we've always done, but it is part of this, this long continuous development of education. Um, and in, you know, in that bit of writing I'm doing, the presentations I'm doing, I actually trace it back to 1726 and um, Emile, um, where the concept was that putting the child in the environment and letting them learn from the environment is good for the education of this, this person. That was 1726. Then you go through Pestalozzi and you go to Rousseau and you go to um, Dewey. You know, you've got this time lapse going over the last, let's say, 250 years of slowly but surely um, educators working towards differentiated learning, recognising that each child does learn differently and also we know that each teacher teaches differently. So 
to me, that's that long ongoing development. We sort of go through bandwagons. We get into a fashion and we try something out and then, and then it fails. And so we dip down a bit, but we never dip back to where we were. We take some of what we learned from that and then we continue the growth again to the next concept. So my, my theory is the 21st century learning really is just um, that difference from 1726, say, through to now of all of this experimentation that's happened. Um, there are things that are unique in 21st century. Um, technology is a good example. We've never seen you know, information so freely accessible and so easily shared that we've got now. But the reality is, you know, when I was growing up, there were huge technological changes. But those technological changes were things like, um, like um, there was a, um, a speaker box in the corner and the teacher could turn it on at, eight, at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning and there was a central lesson being sent from Canberra to every school you know, in Australia. That then was a huge thing. When handheld computers came in, handheld calculators came in, that changed the way the maths was taught. So we've always had technological changes. We've got more at the moment. But look, you know, it's not like we've been teaching in a really, um, some people call it an industrial age model. I really disagree. I think we've slowly but surely been pushing ahead towards where we are now. When you're evaluating the success of a learning environment to make sure that what you're saying is actually having an impact on the students and it is a better model indeed, what's the first step you take towards assessing that environment? We have to work out what's the purpose of the assessment, what are we assessing for, and what do we need to, to do, what's the needs from it. So we are slowly but surely developing better techniques of assessing the, um, evaluating the effectiveness of a learning environment, of a spatial component of a learning environment. Um, and it can either be um, quantitative, and we are getting better and better at actually using things like NAPLAN tests, standardised testing in schools, things like that, using that as a mechanism then to come in and do what we'd call a quasi-experimental design where you put some kids in one type of room and another in another type of room and over a period of time statistically you can start looking at changes arguably caused by the types of spaces they are in. So we can do that sort of thing and that's useful, it gives you some data. But probably the best stuff we're getting and the most interesting stuff is the much more qualitative which is where you're sitting and you're watching what teachers do and you listen to what teachers say about what they do. Um, and we're getting better now at things like tracking kids around the rooms and finding out where, what spaces do they go to and what spaces do they avoid. Um, we have observational metrics which are getting better and better at us actually um, mapping how much time does the teacher spend in direct instruction, how much time in questioning, how much time in listening, um, and obviously the same with the children as well. When you combine all of these things, we're getting a better and better picture of what spaces are working best under what circumstances. So what advice then do you give today's teachers? Well, the best advice is to do what teachers do well, and that's remain open and ready for change. I think all teachers um, want to be a better teacher. That, I think, my own time in classrooms and the years that I've spent in teacher education and also in doing research in schools says that a lot of teachers find it difficult to embrace change because of the extraordinary workload they're under. Um, perhaps sometimes it's that, um, that feeling that they're being criticised that what they're doing isn't good enough, as opposed to what we're doing with our new project is, you're already doing it well, let's see if we can do it even better. So um, it's those sorts of things that our evaluation is trying to focus on. But teachers are an amazing creatures. They, they do an extraordinary job, you know, standing in front of 30 kids and delivering less than an hour under our antiquated timetable system. It's a thing that not many people would have skills at. Teachers are good at it. Um, but what we're finding is that um, teachers, 
they can change, they tend to resist change for a whole range of reasons. So we've got to work out what are the barriers and how can we help to overcome them to allow teachers to really experiment and work on how to improve their pedagogy. And what are those barriers? Have you actually um, been able to document them? Um, we, we, we are documenting them in different ways and I'm again going to, about to write another paper but my, my theories along the line, what I'm working out is that there are four factors that tend to stop teachers from changing. The first factor is that, and, it's, and the, uh, the thing that preempts that is the concept that actually teachers are good evidence-based practitioners. That if they find evidence for something, there's a reasonable chance they'll try it. So the first bit of evidence teachers need is actually there's a problem. Unless you convince teachers that there's something wrong, you're not really going to get them change much. So, you know, in, in environmental spaces, for instance, we will meet resistance from teachers who believe, honestly believe, that actually the classroom they're teaching, the way they're teaching, that the space or arrangement of, teach, of, let's say, tables facing the front is by far the best, okay? And unless you can convince them that actually there is a problem with that, you're not going to get anywhere. The second bit of evidence you actually need with teachers is you need to show that, um, that, that there is a solution that the solution is out there. So if this is a problem, then this is a thing that's been tried in these places, this is what other people have found, and this is how it's working. And if you can convince them that the thing you, you've got there is, is workable, that's good. The third thing is you actually have to then um, show them evidence that actually if they put this into place, it'll have some effect. And the fourth thing is actually you then have to give them evidence that when they've done it and they've put it into place and they've tried it, it's improved. So by the time you get those four bits of evidence together, you've got change in a teacher. What sort of change are you actually asking teachers to make? I'm, um, I'm, I'm not advocating for any particular type of change because every teacher teaches in a way that's unique every, you know, and, and every teacher tries to teach in a way that suits the learning of the children that they're working with. But you know, in a class of 30 kids, you do have 30 people who work differently, who need teaching in slightly different ways, some in dramatically different ways. Um, and so a teacher has to be a lot of things um, to these kids. So I suppose the thing that we're asking of teachers is them to be more reflective and reflexive in their teaching practices than have been up to date. And for us, it's about, please look at the space, look at the way the spaces are, are put in, into place, look at what you are capable of changing with that space, experiment with it and find out, is this actually improving my teaching practice? If you're open to that, then that's the change we're after. What if you're in a situation where you as a teacher want to make the changes, for example, and we were talking about this earlier, where the budget just won't allow it? What do you, what do, you do and what can schools do? Um, the funny thing is that um, budgets do allow for it, but you have to be cunning. Now, most school spaces have got a recurrent budget for fixing broken chairs and things like that. Why just buy the same chairs again? If you're gonna buy a replacement chair, try some different types of chairs. Heights of tables, dramatically and considerably. One, one of the researchers in our research group plays around with the heights of tables in a space. And he did a little experiment. He came, actually came across by accident. He had a group of people he was trying to work with and they just simply weren't working together. They, were, they weren't making comments. They weren't discussing things. They were sitting around a table and they got kicked out of that space. And he couldn't find another place to move them to. So he actually went to an outdoor area that had those stand-up bar-type tables. And he said almost straight away conversations happened. So A, it was the change of environment, but actually he felt it was the table. Because rather than have a big table you sit around and you feel protected behind, by standing around this round table, people tend to walk forward to the table to say something and then step back again. And the table acted almost just like a, um, a prompt or a place for people to make comment. Now it's a little example of the way that teachers can, when replacing furniture on a limited budget, try different types of furniture. And that's just 
furniture. Um, walls have to be painted. Think about the, think about the, um, the colour they need to be painted. Um, the acoustics of a space, you're having a, um, if you have to put um, bookshelves in, if your roof um, height is any more than 2.8 metres in height, then the sound reverberations of the teacher at the front of the room, speaking across the room, bounces back and dramatically decreases the quality of heard sound within the space. Bookshelves, you've got to put them somewhere, put them along the back wall, where actually they absorb the sound and they increase the quality of sound the kids have got. These are all changes that happen within a budget. If you're lucky enough to be a school that does get, you know, 100,000, a million, five million, then use the right people to get assistance in how to make that space, that money really work. Put aside a bit of the budget to get a professional to come in, somebody like the researchers in our team, people like us, who are familiar with, with spatial design, they're familiar with architecture, they're familiar with acoustics, um, they're familiar with teaching practice and teacher pedagogy, and they will, people like, like our team will come in and they'll do um, depending on where in the, in the project you are, if you're going from, for a new build, they'll come in very early and start talking about the educational vision you've got. What is it? What sort of teaching do you want in this space? And therefore, what sort of space is required? And then they'll work with the architects to help design it. We'll do um, experiments and we'll run, um, we'll run little projects to work out the qualities of those design. When it's actually delivered and you move in, then people like us stay with you and we work with you on, now how do you inhabit, occupy the space, move into it, set it up, um, use it, timetable it, all those things. And then there's the concept of inhabitation, the long period. So over time, you, you change things. You might move a wall, you might close the door off but open another one up. You might repaint something, etc. You might put in new acoustic things to improve the acoustic qualities. So it's that sort of, um, that sort of, of um, support you can get from professionals like us, and it does result in a, an increased quality of educational experience for the child in the classroom, and it does not cost a lot. Whereas teachers and students spend a lot of time inside classrooms, is this partially contributing to the reasons we need spaces that are conducive to learning and that influence students in a positive way? Absolutely. You're exactly right. Kids spend a lot of time in classrooms. And why then do we traditionally put them into boring spaces and make them do boring things in terms of sitting down and not moving around and not interrelating with each other as much as possible. And having said that, teachers are good at getting kids to do group work and to break away and do things and those sorts of things, but the, the quality of the space can make that, the, the, the quality of that experience so much better. There's a new school that's been built in, um, for Corfu Grammar in Wheelers Hill. Hayball Architects have designed it. It's a, it's, it's a relocatable. Now, the memory of a, of a pod, a relocatable classroom for people like us, is horrendous. These horrible low-roofed, hot tin things on stilts outside on the basketball court. And what Hayball has done is reconceptualised it. So they come in 14 units, they get put up in about five days. Those spaces inside have got every imaginable type of space within it, but it's not just the space, it's also the, the, the treatment of the surfaces, the types of colours. The amount of glass walls and movable walls compared to the amount of open space, compared to the amount of closed off space, all of these things are thought through really thoroughly. Um, they experiment with the types of carpet that get put down, they experiment with the types of paint that get used, the types of finishes and the smells they give off. They experiment with the, um, the acoustical treatment, try to get the best possible results. You don't want spaces that are too dead, you don't want them that are too, too much reverberation. Um, so all those sorts of things um, make a huge difference in terms of the way that we enjoy the space we're in. But I think 
the research we're doing at the moment, the latest grant we're working on is a really, really big grant. It's, um, it's going to run for four years across New Zealand, um, Queensland, New South Wales, the ACT. We have research partners like Telstra, Steelcase Furniture is a US firm, um, Ecofond, who's an acoustics firm from Sweden. And that project is looking solely at teachers and teachers using these spaces well. What is it that people are already doing well and what is it that is, are the gaps that we need to design mechanisms to help teachers to use them better? And part of that is, or a clear part of that is this notion of habitation, that actually teachers in these spaces, um, when they do get a new learning environment, really are more often than not dumped in them and said, here you go, go ahead and teach. So they're not giving any professional development in how to now utilise space well. And I, I equate it a bit to as being like a house. You've got an architect who would design a space like the Wheelers Hill thing Hayballer did, and they have very clear intentions on how people should live in that space. But guess what people do? Like in a house, they don't move in and they, they use that room as a bedroom. They might convert it into a, light, a dining room because of the way the light is, you know, or the view out to the garden or something like that. Um, and, and people in schools are the same. They move in and they, they start to use it the way it was intended. But if we use them well, we will start to totally turn the thing upside down. We'll start to, you know, cut, cut holes in walls to put a door in where there should have been a door and it wasn't put in. Um, they'll put things up to, to decorate, to make it feel like the sort of space they want it to be. So schools shouldn't be any different to our homes that we live in. We inhabit a home, we don't occupy it, we inhabit it, we live in it, we make it part of us. And we, we are habitués, we are the, 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 the occupiers of this space. And teachers and kids need to feel the same about this space. They own it, it's theirs, but it's theirs to change and to, and to make it suit what they need to, to do. So empowering people to do that is the critical thing. It's not easy to do. It sounds as though having a creative mind and an open mind and a flexible mind is really what you're saying here as well. And teachers have got that. I think the majority of teachers are creative. The majority of teachers are flexible. The majority of teachers are totally committed to improving practice. They have to get, be given opportunity to do it. And while people like us researchers, we can't do much about timetables and about workloads and things like that, the part we can offer that big equation of teacher change is um, awareness, spatial literacy, the awareness of, of how space can actually be, it's, with, sorry, it's within your power as a teacher to manipulate space to a huge degree. And your evidence is saying that there, this new style of teaching is a better approach? Well, it's not necessarily a new style of teaching. It's, I think it's, um, it's the ideal for the society we're moving into where kids do have to be more collaborative they have to be able to share spaces with each other. They have to bounce ideas off people. Um, they have to be able to go to the source of knowledge that's the best, which might be a teacher, it might be a computer, it might be a book, old-fashioned book. Um, how do you create spaces so that can happen is the issue. But let's not forget that actually we've always had creative teaching and we've always had creative use of space. It's been around since the year dot. I mean, I come from a visual art background. Visual art teachers are always taught by manipulating the space, moving chairs and tables, taking kids outside, bringing them inside, all sorts of things like that. You can say the same about a number of different types of teachers. All of us would have examples of teachers who, in the past, have manipulated space really well to make learning more interesting. So it's not like it's brand new, but what we are trying to do is make it more widespread. So as I suppose it's a critical question, does changing the environment improve student outcomes? It does. We have evidence that it does make a difference, a positive impact. I have to say that it's limited evidence because we're talking about a few studies done under very controlled circumstances. 
But an example would be that a school in Queensland uh, with Dr Terry Byers, who was doing his PhD on the topic, he and I looked at this. We did a controlled experiment where we put the kids into three different types of classrooms, a traditional, a semi-informal and a quite, quite, a, quite a, an informal classroom. And we rotated them term by term through those. Same teachers teaching the same content, but just changing the environment. And we looked at the, um, at the outcome of the standardised testing in English and mathematics across that time. And also we'd be able to, because the huge amount of data they've got like that, compare it to like type groups from previous years. And that showed a statistically significant improvement in kids' mathematical learning and learning outcomes in mathematics um, in the informal classroom. So that's the first thing. And that has been, similar things have been found in other studies internationally, but it is rare because it's very hard to isolate the variable of just space. Education is a really hard area to do that type of highly controlled research because we have a lot of what we call confounding um, variables. So for instance, a teacher might well teach um, the same class to two different groups, but they're two different groups of students. So any change, an outcome from that, is that, well, it's probably the kids who are different as opposed to the teaching. That's what a confounding variable does. It might have rained. And so the second group comes in after being playing in the playground when it's raining. And, um, and they get different results. Oh, the rain caused it. So causality is hard to prove in education. But Terry got to the stage where it's, it's reasonably well found that that was the case. But the interesting part from that research is that Terry had moved away from just proving that space does make a difference to kids' learning outcomes. He was fascinated on, but why? Is it the space or is it the teacher practices in the space? And that's what he did the rest of his PhD on. So... Well, that would be my next question. Exactly. <laughs> um, why? Um, we don't know. And this is why we do research. I suppose part of it is, do we need to know? You know, when it comes down to it, um, people's perceptions on how kids are learning, teachers' perceptions, is as equally valid as the statistical outcome. So um, an example from this would be that in that study we did, one of the teachers resisted. She, she was at the front of the room, tables fake in the front, resisted going to the other rooms. By the end of it, she said, if you take me out of the informal space, I'm going to lock myself in there with a padlock. And she totally changed the way she taught. Now, that happened because she, she realised the difference it made in the types of things she could do with the kids and the feedback from the kids and what they were doing was so positive for her, so it built her up as a teacher professionally. Had all those sorts of qualities. That's what you call a sample of one, end of one. But the reality is it's important for that person and those kids, so therefore it's valid. Yeah. We can't turn around and say across the board that if you put in informal classrooms and teach mathematics in the kids' mathematics schools will go up. We can't say that can't generalise it, but we can say in this instance it did, and it had this impact on that teacher, and therefore that little bit of money in putting in that informal classroom paid dividends. And it sounds like it'd be worth a try. I think um, all of us are wanting better education for our students. That's ultimately what every, every school, private, public, large, small, tertiary, primary, everybody wants the same thing. And we are saying one of the significantly under-researched and underutilised and under-examined and misunderstood parts of that is the space we do it in, which is common across all of us. It's bizarre. Every school is a physical learning environment, and yet we as teachers know bugger all about it. And just finally today, Wes, where will your research into learning environments go from here? What are you hoping to achieve ultimately? Ultimately, we need to have teachers at a higher degree of spatial literacy. 
and it's expensive and difficult to do with teachers in the workplace, but that's what our research is doing. The ideal way to do it is to affect teachers at the training process. So universities like University of Melbourne and others like it in the teaching training process ought to have built into it um, the types of knowledge we're creating through the research we do. It's not there. We do run master's level subjects now on this topic, but it's not embedded in the core knowledge that teachers are being trained in. So one of the outcomes has to be that. The second is um, we have to make architects think more like educators and educators have to think more like architects. And learning that, that common, developing and learning that common vocabulary about space and about learning has to be part of what the outcome of our research is. I think, and the third thing is, we actually have to make schools fun. I mean, they already are. A lot of schools are brilliant places to be, but space is a fantastic thing to mess around with. So you and I had a quick walk through a new space we built upstairs that only cost probably about a million dollars more to make it really fancy than it would have cost to put in just the standard walls, etc. I mean, out of a six or eight million dollar budget, the extra money was phenomenal because that space, people walk out of the lifts and enter that floor and everyone goes, wow. Everybody looks around. People say, every time I come into this space, I feel enlivened. Um, we have teachers now who don't occupy their office spaces. They go up and they do their marking in the desk in the classroom. I went up there the other day and there are kids working. There were three teachers and I said, who's actually teaching this? And one teacher said, I don't know. Is it you? Is it you? We had to ask around who was actually teaching the class. But the kids were coming up to all three teachers because they were there. And the other two teachers were there because they were doing work and they prefer to sit in that space. And that's what schools ought to be. Dr Imms, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It was fun. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with Associate Professor Dr Wesley Imms from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. If you'd like to know more about the Learning Environments Applied Research Network, follow the links provided in the transcript of this podcast on the CCPS website or check the SoundCloud episode description. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.